Well, good morning. I'm uh, Pastor Kyle, and uh, I serve here at Harvest. Thankful to be able to open up the Word of God with you this morning. Uh, we're turning to the book of Hebrews. So towards the end of your Bibles, we're drawing to a close on our series, Looking to Jesus. And uh, we find ourselves today in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Hebrews is a packed book. And uh, we're going to be looking at verses 19 to 25 this morning. So Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. I'm going to read it aloud, and then we'll dive into it together. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Our sermon title today is Jesus, Our Confidence and Our Motivation. And so I want to encourage you this morning that I'm not a motivational speaker and that is not It's not at all what I'm about to do. We're going to go through the Word uh, this morning, and I wonder, though, before we go through this, and as we think of motivation, how many of us uh, need motivation sometimes? Maybe I'm the only one. So if I'm the only one that has to drag my butt out of bed every morning, then I'm unusual. Some of you are morning people. You're still going to struggle with motivation. I wonder how many of us struggle to get here this morning. I wonder about... Uh, your struggle even to do the simple things of read something, be somewhere, talk to someone, study, clean, cook, fix, eat, although I've never struggled with motivation to eat personally, Uh, something you just feel that you need to be motivated to do or someone that you know that needs motivation. What do we do though when it's it's, um, about the Christian walk? What about, and again I mentioned this morning, What did it take to get you to church this morning? And you might have some answers in your mind to think, I know what it took. I know why I'm here. I wonder why you're here. What what motivates you to study your Bible? What motivates you to pray? To be a part of a small group? To pray out loud in small group? To come to a prayer meeting this Wednesday? What, What would motivate you to do such a thing? What would motivate you to witness? To suffer for your faith? To make a stand? To lose friends and family? To lead friends, to lead a wife, kids, what motivates you? Well, the passage that we just read, Hebrews 10, 19 and 25, answers the question of where we must find our motivation to live for Christ. Now this book, we come at it, and so you have to know a little bit about Hebrews. Uh, For us just to look at a passage without knowing about the book of Hebrews is not going to be very helpful. So just very briefly, to help give you context, 
We're not sure who wrote the book of Hebrews, but we do know some things about the people that received this book, this letter. It's more like a sermon, actually. It was written to believers. We know this for sure. We even saw that in verse 19. These believers were struggling. We see that later in verse 10, or chapter 10, sorry. There was persecution, and it seems not primarily from the Romans. It seems that the persecution they were facing was primarily from fellow Jews, from family members, perhaps. And the pressure was to return to their old ways, to go back to Judaism. And they were stuck. These believers weren't growing. They needed, you could say, some motivation. You look at Hebrews 5, verse 12. The author says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. And then he says, and this is very interesting, he says, you need milk, not solid food. They needed motivation. But how do you motivate believers who aren't growing? How do you motivate yourself? Well, the whole book of Hebrews basically answers two questions. What Jesus has done and who he is. Those are your two basic questions through the book of Hebrews. And right now, in 19 and 25, these verses, he hones in to answer this question of motivation. How in the world am I going to motivate these believers who are suffering and struggling and the pressure is, is mounting and they're not going anywhere? They're still on milk. How do I motivate these people? He's answering these two questions. It's interesting to me what he doesn't do. It's interesting to me that he never mentions a conference down the road in Bethlehem. He doesn't mention that. He doesn't mention Peter's sermon back in Acts that was uploaded to YouTube. You upload it or download it or you web it or whatever, but it's on there. He doesn't mention that. All right? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say you should listen to the worship music in the synagogue. It would be inspiring. He doesn't say make sure you get to the temple and watch the rituals and the sacrifices. I think it would be good for you. He doesn't say there's a motivational speaker next week in Nazareth. You should go listen to him. He doesn't mention any of those things. Now, some of those things might have been fine, but he doesn't mention them. He doesn't. The reason he doesn't is because it doesn't matter unless it all points to Christ. Why? Well, when we're confident in Christ, we are motivated for Christ. That's it. That's, that's the point of what he's saying here. If you are confident in Christ, then you are motivated for Christ. And those other things honestly don't matter. They might be flashes in a pan and get you excited for a time, but it won't last. When we're confident in Christ, we are motivated for Christ. And basically this then, you look at verses 19 to 21, he's answering now the question of, what has Jesus done then? And who is Jesus? Look at it with me. It says here, therefore, and we read this, therefore, brothers, again, he's saying this to believers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus and by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. So he says, because since Jesus has done this, and then look at verse 21, and since, this is who Jesus is, we have a great priest over the house of God. Since these things, now we can do something. Now, the context of this, what does verses 19 to 21 mean? 
That, that's not language we'd use now. What is he saying? Why doesn't he just tell us what Jesus is doing? Why the symbolism? Well, year after year, and literally these believers would have got this letter and had the temple just down the road. I believe the temple hadn't been destroyed yet. And they knew the history behind this, like a thousand years or over a thousand years of history. And they knew that year after year, the Day of Atonement meant that the high priest would enter the temple. He would, in fact, go into the Holy of Holies. And he would do that once a year. And he'd go past the curtain and he'd make atonement for himself, for the people, through the shedding of blood, through sacrifices of animals, ceremonial washings. And this would atone for the sin of the people. But it wasn't enough. It was visual, it was graphic, it was real, it was commanded, but it wasn't enough. We know in Scripture that no one is righteous. It wasn't enough. No, not one. Not one person is righteous. And no one who is unrighteous will enter the kingdom of God. There is no one, did you know this? There is no one in heaven. Back to Adam, Moses, or Abraham, because of the shed blood of bulls, or goats, or lambs. Did you know that? We are told plainly through the book of Hebrews that it was one person, one sacrifice. The Moses, even Adam, was looking forward to a sacrifice that was enough. If Jesus Christ didn't shed his blood and rise from the dead, there is no salvation. For any of those people, it was one act. It was one man. Now, they knew what had taken place, and now they knew Christ and that he was this sacrifice. And so Christ, they knew, did the impossible to atone for sin. He offered then, as I said, his own body, shedding his own blood, rising from the dead, and this proved that he was a worthy sacrifice. All the symbols of the, of the temple, they pointed to this person. They pointed to Christ. The sacrifice was to his sacrifice. And the blood and all that was shed and the millions of animals that pointed to the blood of one, which was Christ. The priest going before the people to God. It was all pointing to Christ, the high priest. It was one. Christ, and through the book of Hebrews, we're told he is greater than the angels. Christ is greater than the sacrifices. Christ is greater than Moses. Christ is supreme. This is who he is. And the way, and it's, it's even a visual you can see, the way has been opened through this better sacrifice. The curtain is torn. I, I'm sure that they had already repaired the curtain. He's talking about the spiritual realm. He says, no, no, the curtain, they can mend it up, but it's been torn, forever torn. The way to God has been opened through one sacrifice, Jesus Christ. There's no other. There's, there's no other, you know, what's good for you, or I choose this religion, or this God, or this idea. The curtain that divided the Holy of Holies has been torn, and Jesus Christ is the one that makes the way to God. It is done. And it is the act of one man who has done one Sacrifice. That's, that's it. But they were tempted to go back to their old ways. They lacked motivation. They knew it. They maybe would get excited for this. These were believers that in fact had trusted in it, but they needed motivation. He says in verse 19, look at verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since... I, I think I had always looked at this passage 
as a passage saying, this is how you got, you're going to get into heaven, Kyle. This is why you know that you're saved. Yes, it's true. But he is, he is reminding brothers and sisters. He's saying, therefore, brothers, a couple things, since it's true, since this is true, and since this has saved you, now let's do something. This is actually more about motivation for our walk than it is about some facts about how you got saved. The curtain's been torn. Yeah, there's only one way, Jesus Christ, the end. And it's just some things that you know. He says, no, since you know this, now we do something. You were as confident to say this one sacrifice saved you. You must be just as confident then to be motivated by this same Christ for your life. When we're confident in Christ, we're motivated for Christ. When we're confident in Christ, we're motivated for Christ. So because of him, we draw near. Our first point is this. We draw near because he's purified us. Verse 22, look at what he says. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Here's the first thing that we notice here is that any time we draw near to God, any time that we pursue Him, any time that we seek Him, seek to know Him, we must come with, and look, he says, with a true heart. That is, a sincere heart. When he says a heart, he's saying your affections, your will, your mind. He's literally saying, not the physical heart, but he's saying your whole being. What you believe, what you love, what you're going after the volition you have to do things, he says, when you do that, you need to do it sincerely. Now, I wonder if you've ever had times where you think, well, I sincerely don't feel motivated to draw near to God right now. Has anyone felt that before? A couple of you and myself. <laughs> I wonder if you've asked yourself that question, but I sincerely don't feel like doing these things that I know that I need to do. So, so does that mean that I'm a hypocrite if I came today and I didn't feel like coming? I would say absolutely not. Uh, Kevin DeYoung, I just listened to him preach not too long ago at the Gospel Coalition, and he said something to this effect. He says, that's not hypocritical. That's not hypocritical. That's called the Christian life. <laughs> it's tough. It's tough. I want to come, but this is hard. It's way different than, yeah, I'm coming, but I mean, I guess this is a good thing to do. And um, someone told me I had to. I mean, I'm still glad you're here, but that's not sincere. But you can sincerely struggle, for sure. And he says you need to be sincere, though. You need to come with a heart that's all in, or at least wants to be, even though the struggle is difficult. Well, how do you find the motivation to draw near to God? How do we motivate others to draw near to God? Well, we know, and we're going to see in this passage, that it must come from our confidence in God, in Christ. Look what he says, draw near in full assurance of faith. Now, be careful before you say, okay, I think I'm doing that. And you start thinking about your faith. I have faith, I, you know what, I have a strong faith. If you described it, how would you describe it to someone? I have full assurance even, you'd say, of my faith. Well, what's your faith? What's your faith in? Everyone has faith. Almost anyone you talk to says, I have faith, but in what? He gets specific. Look at verse 22 again. He says, With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
He's not just filling in some religious language. He's saying, you come with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith in that. With your heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and your bodies washed with pure water. That you have faith in a sprinkling and a washing. What's the sprinkling? Well, again, even for sake of time, we can't go all into it. It would be a whole other sermon. But the, the, the idea of sprinkling is, again, blood. And it's, again, atonement. What's he talking about? He's not saying bleed or cut yourself. He's, he's not talking about the temple sacrifices again. They're already struggling with that, of going back to those ways. He's saying, no, have faith that you have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. And then he gives you a clean conscience, not an evil conscience, but a clean one, a good one. He's relieved the guilt from you. And then you, you come in faith that Christ has made you clean. He's washed you. Your whole person has been clean, inside and out. Why? Because you have faith? No. Because you have faith in that. Because you have faith in what Christ alone has done and who he is. And he says, then you come with full assurance of that. Andrew Murray, I'll have it on the screen for you, says this. He would summarize it this way, and I think he does it well, so I want to read it for you. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, right? Purifies us not only from the guilt, but also from the stain of sin. He sprinkles you and he washes you. Do you have full assurance in that? If we're confident in this, then it must motivate us to draw near. I want to give you uh, three ways to test your motives for drawing near to God through this passage. And the first is this, not explicitly in the passage, but it's this. Am I drawing near or am I distracted? What's your motives for drawing near to God? And first of all, the question is, are you even drawing near or are you distracted? I want you to think of, again, and yes, we struggle but are you giving in to the distractions? Think of your morning routine. What's the first thing that you think of? For me, it's food. <laughs> I'm starving when I wake up. What's the first thing on your mind? The next thing is your phone, maybe. What do you think of? What are you drawn to? Sports. Who won? What was the score? TV, radio, your makeup, your food, your work, your calendar, your kids. You think on through the day as the day increases, right to the end of the day. Video games, phones. It is unbelievable to me. You look around anywhere now, if it's in a waiting room or at a crosswalk, and I've said this before, but it is a phenomenon that is unbelievable. What are people drawing near to? You meet in a waiting room. Anytime we went to a rehearsal for Natalie's uh, piano yesterday, it's getting increasingly awkward to be around people. <laughs> Because if no one's doing this, it's not natural anymore. They're looking at their phones. And they're drawing near to that. You've got five seconds and you're like, man, it's just I've got to get near to this phone. It's unbelievable. What's distracting you? Maybe it's not the phone. I don't know. But what's distracting you? Second, am I drawing near or am I just religious? Verse 22, he says, we're to draw near in full assurance of faith. When he says full assurance of faith, Okay, he's saying bearing your full weight on something. Now, I was going to try this before, so first service. 
but it would be like this. Yeah, that's holding me right now. All right, that was pretty exhausting, actually. <clears throat> I just bore this, or I just bore my full weight. I put my full weight on this pulpit. That's it. I'm bearing my full weight on this pulpit. He's saying, put your full assurance. Let it bear the full weight of, of your faith. Okay, what? Christ. Have you put your full weight and assurance in that, that he has purified you, that is one act, one sacrifice, once and for all? Okay, so when you're drawing near, are you putting your weight in something else? Okay, would you say, yes, my full assurance, absolutely, Jesus died for me, but there's moments you're not drawing near, because if you're honest, your weight is actually on what the pastor thinks of you, or what he's going to say, Your weight is actually on how the worship's going to be, not really on what's being shared, the feeling that you have or hope to have. Maybe your weight is on the doctrine that you know or the deeds you do or the deeds that you've done. Why does he say put your full, like all on, full weight on him? It's because we struggle with this. I've, I've said this before, and, and this is why I say this again. Do not ask people to come to church. Okay, so let's close in prayer. No. All right. <clears throat> Do not ask people to come to church unless you are asking them to come and meet Christ. Unless you are saying, I want you to see what Jesus has done and who he is and I want you to put your full weight in that. Because if you invite them to church, the end. There's a real good chance they're going to think drawing near to God is coming to church. It's a part of it. It's hard to draw near to God and, and stop meeting together. And, and we'll look at this in a moment. But it's not enough. You just have to hear the pastor. Why? You have to hear the worship. Why? What are you, what are you giving their assurance in? Ah, the worship wasn't so great. Ah, Kyle lost his train of thought 12 times. <laughs> it's not always true. <clears throat> why, right? Why did he lose his train? I don't know why. What's your full assurance in? And as you call people to it, it will expose what your assurance is in. What has Christ done? Who is he drawn near? Third, am I drawing near or half-hearted? If you're honest in those moments where you say, um, I'm going to draw near. Okay, I'm going to draw near. And yes, I, I, I'm putting my full weight on Christ, yes. But if you're honest, you really, in the moments that you draw near, would say, I really believe, though, that there needs to be a feeling. I'm going to draw near to God. I have to have this feeling. And yes, my full, aware, full assurance on Christ and his sacrifice, but... But if I'm going to draw near, it should be easy. Why is it so hard? You know what? I'll do it. I'll draw near when I know more. I'm just not quite there yet to, to, to draw near the way that I feel compelled to or been told to. Um, I just need to be more scheduled. When I'm not so busy, then I'll draw near. I am a new mom, and there's just no way that I can do this. I've got a new job. I can't. Right now, I can't. But you know what? In the new year, it looks like things are opening up, and then I can I'll draw near as soon as people at church stop being hypocrites. 
if I stop being hurt by people, then I'll draw near. And what's happening there is, is there might be little truths to all those things. And I, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having feelings. And yes, people shouldn't be hypocrites. But why does he say put your full assurance in Christ? Because you have to do that in order to draw near. And if you don't, and if you're just kind of half in the door, you're not going to draw near. You'll be stopped from it. We have to be thinking every time we look to draw near on the person and work of Christ. He has literally purified you for drawing near. He has purified you for salvation. He has prepared you to draw near. So draw near. All in. When we're confident in Christ, we're motivated for Christ. We're motivated to draw near because he's purified us. And second is this, we're motivated to hold fast because he's faithful to us. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hold fast to the confession. He says, hang on to this. It's almost like a legal document. It's got legal connotations. Hold fast to this confession, this thing that, is, that you believe that is unchanging. We would say written in stone. Hang on to that. It's our hope. When he says this hope, this confession of our hope, we think a hope, it's like, man, I hope so. You know, I hope the Oilers make the playoffs. I doubt it, but I hope so. Right? No, when he says hope here, hope is the assurance, right, of things not seen. This is certainty. He's saying this is our absolute certain hope of the future. We're not wishful thinking here. Hang on to this thing that is written in stone. Now, you might think that holding to your faith, holding to your beliefs, even your doctrine would be just brushing up on it. Okay, I just need to look over the doctrinal statement. Um, I went to a doctrine class when I first moved here four years ago, and I was serving in Harvest Oakville. It's a massive church, twice as big as the community that I grew up in. And I went to a doctrine class, and uh, Pastor Robbie Simons was leading it. I was super intimidated. Let me tell you that I brushed up on my doctrine before I went to doctrine class to learn about doctrine. I did some serious studying before I went into that class. Now, is that wrong? Well, well no. Maybe holding, though, the confession means just studying or memorizing more. Holding fast, when he says hold fast, this isn't get ready for doctrine class, it's coming. This is continual. Okay. Hold fast is written in the tense of continually holding on to. He's not referring to a big moment. He, he, it could be, but he's not referring to that. You have to remember that the, Hebrews, or sorry, the book of Hebrews was written to these believers who should have been on meat, but they're still in the bottle, so to speak. Okay, he's writing to immature believers who need to get going. So he doesn't say in verse 23, you need to learn the confession of your faith, though. That's interesting. I would think they're immature. You go straight to, you need to get to doctrine class. You're still in the bottle. But it doesn't seem that they needed more knowledge necessarily, though that is good and fine and right. And we're doing that this morning even. But he says, hold fast to it, not learn more about it. Hold on to this continually. Don't let this go. That's what he's saying to them. So maturity is not so much about what you know as it is about what you do. 
about if you're hanging on. Now, I want to give you a diagram here. I'm going to give you one on the screen. And so this is called the gap of unbelief. This is just man-made uh, diagram, but this is helpful, I think, for what uh, the text is really speaking to, I believe. So this is the gap of unbelief. And so you see at the top there, you have your spoken theology. So this is you nailed doctrine class. You got 100% on every exam. And so you have your spoken theology. This is what I say I believe. I believe it. But then in the bottom here of your life, you have your lived out theology. What I really believe. See, I can say that I need to be gentle to my wife, but in lived out theology, I'm raising my voice. And what happens in that moment, and you can see how I live, just arrows out showing this is what I'm doing, how I'm living. There's a gap of unbelief. I'm saying I believe something, but I'm not actually living that way. What he's saying to the believers is there needs to be no gap. Hang on to the confession of your faith. You know that you're holding fast when this then. You know you're holding fast to your faith when your, theology, your spoken theology matches your lived out theology. That's when you know that you're hanging on to the confession of your faith. It really doesn't matter what you believe in a sense unless you're going to live it out. And the way you live it out shows what you really believe. And so when the gap is tight, you know that you are clinging on to your faith. He tells them to do this in verse 23 without wavering. Literally, this means without leaning without wavering, without leaning. I wonder what you lean to. I know what I lean to. What's your default? What's your MO when the pressure is on? What do you tend to do? The kids drive you crazy? Where are you going to lean? Are you going to raise your voice? Where's your lean typically? Certain things happen and you say you believe something, but man, on paper, when the rubber meets the road, that's not exactly what's happening. Maybe your lean is to give up. Maybe your lean is to raise your voice. Maybe your lean is to run away. Maybe your lean is to suck it up. Maybe it's to think positive. Maybe it's to be anxious or fearful or try to control the situation. And the list honestly goes on and on and on. Leaning is a natural thing that we do. It's like uh, your Christmas tree. If you put up a Christmas tree, it's probably leaning right now. Or the stars leaning. It drives me crazy. It just does that. It's just a natural thing that it does. And so with us, we just naturally lean to these things. We, we, we're told to hang on, and we, we need to hang on, and we just lean. We just naturally, it's what we do, we lean. What will motivate me not to lean? What will no, motivate me to, to hold on to what is true? Well, he tells us in verse 23. He tells us the answer. He says, hold on, because he who promised is faithful. You can try to intimidate and motivate and motivational speak, and I was like that, but I did this, and blah, blah, blah. It is not going to do anything. It, it will be a flash in the pan unless you are convinced of it in Christ. See, the more convinced we are that he is faithful to keep his promises, the more motivated you will be to hang on. The ability to hang on is not in the power of your grip. The ability to hang on is in your confidence. It's in the strength of your faith. Do you really believe he's faithful to keep his promises? So, you maybe find yourself exhausted and you're tempted to lean. You say, if I do this thing, it's going to be exhausting. 
And you're tempted to lean and just let go. But you will hang on. You must hang on. Why? And I'm going to give you uh, some promises of God and just a couple. Like this, is, this isn't even scratching the surface. Okay? But those moments you feel, if I do this, if I hang on, I'm not going to make it through. I'm going to be exhausted. But you hang on. Why? Because Psalm 46 God is our refuge and strength and a very present help in trouble. You say, no, if I hang on, I will lose my job, my relationships, this investment, everything. Maybe. But I will hang on. Why? Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I won't be able to satisfy these cravings if I hang on. But I will hang on. Why? Why would you hang on? Why? Because he's faithful to his promises. Psalm 16, in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If I hang on, I'll be misunderstood and alone. But I will hang on. Why? Matthew 28, I will be with you always to the end of the age. You won't be alone. It's too scary. I will hang on. Why? Because I believe in the promises of God. He's faithful. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And so I hang on. So we hang on. And that's why. Because he who promised is faithful. Now if he's faithful, and we're called to be faithful, but we're not. But even when we're not, he is. And if he is, and he's made some promises... Do you think we should cling to those? I would say so. I would say that's a pretty good bet. You're going to want to hang on to those. No matter what, you need to hang on to those and you will be tempted to lean. You would think this is a no-brainer. We'll never lean. Why would you lean if he's faithful to his promises? Because we do. We're like Christmas trees. It's just what we do. It's our nature. When we're confident in Christ, we're motivated for Christ. When we're confident, or sorry, when we're motivated to draw near, it's because he's purified us. Second, we'll be motivated to hold fast because he's faithful to us. And finally, we're motivated to stir up one another because he's returning to us. We stir up one another because he's returning to us. Verse 24, and look at it there. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. When we're confident in Christ, we're motivated for Christ. And when that happens, we tend to motivate others. Isn't it sort of contagious? You get a brand new believer, and it's like, it's almost the case all the time. You can't get them to stop talking about Jesus. You don't want to get them to stop talking about Jesus. When you're confident like that, you've, and someone that's come from death to life, and I think this is why we see that then, is it is just so raw to them. It is so, they are so convinced that they were dead and now they're alive. I just can't, I can't help but stir everyone up to this. They're talking to their family members and their cousins, uncles, friends, neighbors, daughter. They can't help it. And so when you're confident, you tend to motivate others. Verse 24 tells us how to do it. It says, stir up. Did you know that stir up can mean also, or not can mean also, it means, another way of saying it, is provoke? You have license to provoke each other. And you're thinking, well, I tell my kids to stop doing that all the time. 
It's like they're continually considering how to provoke each other towards, you know, tears and, and anger, right? That's what's, what kids do. They're thinking of it all the time. Well, we're called to, in a sense, do the same. We are called to stir up, not, not just a, hey, do you think maybe, but just poke, 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 right? It's what my kids do all the time, and we're called to provoke. We're called to think of ways to provoke one another to love and good works. Man, that seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? I'm supposed to think of ways to provoke you to love and towards good works. So we're supposed to put each other out. We're supposed to be that phone caller. You're like, really? Seriously, we need to block that guy. We're supposed to be that person that brings it up again. Why? Why? Have you had that done to you before? I've had that done before. I've had a friend of mine say to me, and I might have mentioned this before. He said, you need, to, you need to take sermons and find someone who has the ability to take them from the internet and put them somewhere where you can listen to them. And then you, I say that because I'm not techie. And once you get that mystery solved, he says, you need to listen to sermons. And you need to listen to a particular sermon. Well, I wasn't going to do that. It was way too much work to ask someone for help. And he asked me every day. And I finally did it. And I was like, thank you. That was life-giving. I needed you to provoke me. Some of you are serving right now because some of our serving uh, team has provoked you. Jerry O'Connell is a big reason that many of you are in small group right now. You, and he would say, you were loved. Okay, he's, you're come to Harvest Welcome, you've got an iPad in your face, and you're ready to go, Right? And so he's provoking, and we provoke one another to love and good works. What will motivate us, though, to stir up one another? Because here's the thing. We can say, yes, I'm excited, and yes, I will do that, and yes, I'm confident, so here we go. But it's tough. Did you know that it's tough to provoke? It seems easy for my kids, but we're talking about a different provoking. We're not talking about sin. Provoking to love and good works. I am convinced, this is why he says in verse 25, not to neglect meeting together. Why? Because when you stir one another up, it is tough. And I believe he's writing, not neglect to meet. And he's referring first to the person that's doing the stirring. I think he's talking to the person doing the stirring and saying, look, don't stop meeting. Why? Because it's tempting to stop. It is hard work to consider how to stir up one another. Consider, he's saying like thoroughly consider this. You're supposed to be thinking on it. Do you know that it's tough to think of ways to stir people up to love and good works? It's just easier just not to. It's just easier not to think of it. It's tough work. It takes effort. It's tempting to stop stirring up people. And it's tempting to say, I'm just not going to meet anymore. Why? Because it's not well received. Some of you are thankful that Jerry has provoked you, perhaps. And others of you are like, get out of my face. It's not always well-received. It's not often that people say, thank you for pointing out my sin. You know, thank you for challenging me. Thank you for re revealing my pride. I hadn't seen that. Thank you for showing me my unbelief. Thank you for showing me the gap. It doesn't always happen that way. And when there seems to be no progress or you seem to be misunderstood, you're just pushy, get out of my face. The temptation for the one doing the stirring 
is I'm just not meeting anymore. It's just easier to stay away. Second, I believe he's saying not neglect meeting together, and this is written for those who are being stirred. In extreme cases, there's one thing that I see that is common in rebellion, and it is isolation. Those that get stirred and say, and you might not even, you've maybe been here in your life before, and I'm sure you have, I think we all have to one, one level or another, and they say, I don't like that, that's uncomfortable, and you know it's from God. What happens? And this has happened to some of the closest friends in my life. I can't get a hold of them. There is no hope of me getting a hold of them. With all the technology that we have, somehow they've vanished off the face of the earth. And we're warned here, do not neglect meeting together. Why? Because if I can't talk to you, if you can't talk to them, it's pretty hard to stir them up, isn't it? And he says, don't be that person that was being stirred and now you say it's just easier not to be by that person. It's too convicting. I don't want to think about it right now. And you say, I'm not meeting anymore. Now some of us have neglected to meet together and it's not out of sheer rebellion. We're not going out of our way to just disown the person. But it's as uh, verse 15 says, or not verse 15, sorry, 25, as the habit of some. As is the habit of some. For some of us is a habit. You have a habit of canceling on small group last minute. It's your habit. You do it again and again. You sleep in for church. Prayer, uh, the prayer meeting on Wednesday is not going to work. Why? Because you're going to be uh, too sick, too scared. You won't have matching clothes. You won't have uh, your homework done. Your job's at work is holding you back. You're late from work. You have yard work. Last chance to hunt or to watch the final game. Whatever it is, here's the thing is it's a habit. And you don't think that it's a habit. I used to be five minutes late for every meeting ever. I've told you this before. I had a spiritual gift of being five minutes late. Like on the button, five, ding. Yeah, I'm fashionably late. And I thought that was acceptable. And I thought it was because of the weather or the traffic or my alarm clock and the list goes on. But it was a habit. That's what it was. He says some of you are in the habit of neglecting to get together. It is a habit. He says you need to break the habit. The command is do not neglect to meet together, not do not neglect to text together either. He doesn't say just make sure that you connect. If Hebrews would have been inspired, you know, by the Holy Spirit in 2018 and written today, I am convinced he still would have said, do not neglect to meet together. Why? We have Facebook. Why can't we Facebook together? Or group text together? Or social media, whatever together? Or Skype or whatever? The rest of it. Why not? Why does he say meet together? And is it just because back then they, just, they could write letters? Why meet together? Well, because he says meet together, first of all. And it's important that we see that's what's commanded, and so that's what we must do. I think the reason, this may be not explicitly said, is because it's hard. That's why, we don't, that's why it's a struggle. We already looked at that. It is hard to come to church. I don't care who you are. If you're the pastor, it's hard. It's hard to be around people. Okay, and I'm more on the extroverted side. 
It is difficult to be around people. It takes up your time, quite honestly. It takes courage. There's awkward silence. You see people cry. You see people angry. You get together with people. This is what happens. You see people when they're desperate. Why would we keep getting together? Some of you this morning, I know. I know for sure because it's the case for me. It was really tough to get here to meet together today. And some of it is that you just, it's, it's hard. You feel anxiety to be in a group even. Why would we keep doing it? Why, why meet together? What would be our motivation? Well, when we're confident in Christ, we're motivated for Christ. And he says, why? Look at verse 25. He says, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is why. Why would you do it? If it's uncomfortable, don't do it. Don't meet with them. They're weird. Pastor Kyle's weird. Don't, don't hang out with them. Why? All the more as you see the day of returning, because he is returning to us. We're confident that he's returning. We just sang about it before I came up to preach. It's not so much that life is short. He's not saying your days are numbered. He's saying Christ is returning. That's what he's saying. So will you be found faithful? When we stir each other up, it can't be just stop it. It can't just be, look, just do it. It can't be you need to think this, love this way, draw near this way, hold firm, meet together, the end. It can't just be that. It has to be, it might be those things, but it always has to be a building of confidence in the person and who Christ is. Or else it matters not. It doesn't matter. And in this case, he says, you're going to get together. Why? Because Christ is returning. This is why. Motivating each other to continue because he's returning. Our focus is on Christ once again. It always has to be. So when we're confident in Christ, we're motivated for Christ. Now I wonder, and in closing, uh, this question. I wonder if it's difficult for most of us to share our faith. We have a hard time describing our faith in Christ. And I wonder if it's not because we don't share it publicly often. You know, maybe your baptism, maybe that time with a family member or your neighbor. But I wonder if it's difficult because we don't think about it often. And I think that's why it's difficult. If our motivation for Christ is because of our confidence in Christ, you have to be thinking of Christ, what he's done, and who he is every day. You don't move from the gospel. You don't move on to that. You don't say, yeah, yeah, Hebrews 10, that was about me being saved. You have no confidence. You have no motivation or confidence in Christ. And so we ought to be thinking of it every day. And if you're thinking about it every day, the more you think on it, the more you grow in it, the more you question and say, I don't even know what to do. And I've said this before. I said this to someone that I love dearly. I said, the gospel has to speak into this. And they asked me how. And I said, I don't know. Because I didn't. But I'm like, I know it has to. So we have to figure it out. And when you do that, when you wrestle that way, you, you're able to, to share it. You've done the work. You're growing in confidence in Christ. So are you drawing near because you're confident he's purified you? Every time you're drawing near, you're thinking about your salvation, the cleansing that you've had, the washing that you've had in Christ. Are you holding fast because you're confident that he's faithful? 
Every time you hold fast, you're thinking of his promises. Are you stirring up one another? Every time. Every time you're stirring up. Why? How? By pointing them to Christ. Or are you just telling your kids, get to church? Are you just saying, stop doing that to whoever? You shouldn't think that way. You shouldn't do it. Are you bringing them to Christ and saying, here's why? Let me remind you who Christ is. Let me remind you of what he's done. Are you thinking on this yourself all the time? Because when we're confident in Christ, then we're motivated for Christ.